these are baby dairy cows. They will mature in about two years, and at that time, they'll start producing about eight and a half gallons of milk a day. But the cost of getting that milk from the farm to your kitchen has gone up over the past year, driven by the price of gas, even the price to package the milk. Now that price is about $3.50 a gallon nationally, more than the price of a gallon of gasoline. And experts say that's a symptom of national inflation, and this is just the start. This is the conversation everywhere. Let me bring in Dr. Matt Will, economist, uh, professor uh, there at the University of Indianapolis. Uh, MattWill.com is where you can go to get more on him. Sir, let's talk about what it is that we're seeing. We've seen the increase in gas prices. We're all feeling it. We're seeing an increase in food prices. And then we have the Fed Moving up its timeline, as CNBC reports it, for rate hikes. So before we get to the food conversation and the gasoline conversation, the Fed making this announcement yesterday that they're seeing the possibility of these interest rates rising. What is that a cue for for the rest of society? Well, well, Tony, what's happening is for about the past 10 years, inflation's only been around 2%. Yet this May, it was 5%. This is a serious problem. And the Fed, in response, they've announced they intend to increase the Fed funds rate. What they're hoping, Tony, is that the intention alone is going to reduce the fears. Because, Tony, the most important thing to know, inflation is really bad news. I mean, it destroyed economies like Greece and Cyprus and Italy. It, it It is bad stuff. And we need to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it looks like it may. When we talk about Greece and uh, specifically, you're also talking about a, a radicalized level of spending. Maybe I've spoken too soon when we talk about the spending in the United States. So let's get into some definitions. How do you define inflation and how and, and what are the conditions by which we can see it growing here? You know, inflation is a very simple calculation, Tony. It's too much cash and not enough stuff to buy. And there's only two people in this country that can do that, the Federal Reserve Board and the federal government. And without getting into the nerdy math, when President Biden spends trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, he's causing inflation. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve Board, they can cause inflation by pumping cash into the economy. And they've been doing this for a while now, and it's finally caught up with them. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. But let's be clear, Donald Trump was a spender. So why do I have inflation now as a conversation I didn't have it then? Well, you know what? That's a great point. And I think you and I have even talked about this on on the air, is that we weren't fans of the spending that Donald Trump was doing. But the economy was growing. Like I just said, more cash, you also have to have more stuff. And under Donald Trump, the economy was exploding. It was doing great. So there was lots of stuff to buy. Now there's not. The economy is slowing down. Even though we've had a V recovery, that's kind of a holdover. And it's still there's a shortage of goods and services. There's a shortage of lumber. I mean, you name it. There's stuff out there we just can't buy. You try to buy a car, Tony, good luck. The semiconductors don't exist to put in the cars. You're on a waiting list. There's not enough stuff. The economy is going too slow. 
The not enough stuff uh, conversation on cars, for example, is, of course, real. General Motors expect uh, inflation and the semiconductor chip shortage to cost them $3 billion by the end of this year. That's a big, giant number. When we talk about the, the, the lumber issues, lumber prices have come down a touch, but it's still the ability to find lumber. That is, of course, the question. So as we look at these things, you have to ask yourself, well, where is the end in sight? And are there things that are done through financial policy, monetary policy, uh, a la the Fed, that fix this? I'm not saying I'm a Fed guy. I'm asking, is the raise in interest rates the only thing the Fed can do to try and be a hedge against this uh, impending issue? There's lots of things they can do, Tony, but they don't want to do it because the Fed, the Fed has said there's nothing to see here. These aren't your droids. They're calling this transitory. That means they think it's temporary. Inflation's here for a moment because there's demand for product, but there's not enough supply of stuff. There will be stuff soon enough. So they're just doing a head fake, like we say in basketball. They're not really taking it seriously. And I don't know if they're going to. Maybe if we have three or four months of high inflation, maybe they'll take it seriously. But tell me, they aren't doing anything. They're just saying they might do something at the end of 2023. That's not enough. Well, what are they supposed to say? I mean, in all honesty, if they say, oh, my gosh, it's inflation, we're all going to die, then they're guilty of creating a panic. That's something they would have done under Donald Trump, but they'll never do politically under Joe Biden. So is this Fed, as as led by Jerome Powell as it was uh, during President Trump, are they more political or are they just trying to keep markets at as, at, at as much rest as possible? You know, you said it very well. There's a theory called political monetary policy. And I think what you're seeing here is exactly that, political monetary policy, because I think the Fed is afraid to say to the federal government, you're spending too much money. I think they're afraid to do that. And we should at least be clear that Joe Biden has offered up $12 trillion worth of spending in his first six months. Not that $12 trillion has been spent, but he has offered up $12 trillion. One of the things that is now being spent is this child tax credit. This idea that if you have a child between 6 and 17, or 6 and 18, right, uh, and and uh, you, you make under a certain threshold, you're going to get $250 a child. If the child is under 6, you're going to get $300 a child. As we take a look at the job market, uh, Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, as we take a look at this job market, we see the jobs open. We see people trying like you wouldn't believe to get employees, and it's not happening. You're seeing Governor Eric Holcomb get sued for ending extended unemployment uh, benefits, even though those the dropping it hasn't caused people to get back into the job market like I thought it would. Has this child tax credit, which I think comes as a payment, is this exacerbating the problem of people not getting back to work? Oh, it's it's definitely. Now, let me say that, it is part of the problem because there's a lot of components. But if I give you 250 bucks per child, and there is there used to be a limit on that, Tony. You didn't just get it in your pocket as cash. Now it's a direct credit. It goes into your pocket. Even if you don't make any money, the government gives you this money. Wait, so wait. What, direct, if, does direct credit mean an actual check? No, what it means is, you. yes, you will get a refund from the federal government on your taxes. That is okay. exactly correct. They will send you money. When you file your taxes. When you file your taxes, it's not like every month a check is going to appear in your mailbox. That's the point I was making. 
You know, I, I, you know what? I will be honest with you. I don't know the mechanics of it, but since it's a tax credit, tax credits occur at the end of the, when you file your taxes. They don't occur during the year. So this tax credit, this ability to, to, to save these dollars, there, there's a value to this or is there a financial disincentive to this? There's a tremendous value to, um, to getting the money if you get it, but there's a disincentive for you to work. Because why would you – people in this world, Tony, not everybody wants to pursue uh, you know, greatness in their careers. Some people are satisfied to live an average life. They're satisfied to get their bills taken care of, to play video games, to watch Netflix. Maybe they don't have that aspiration that, that some people do. And so this little amount is more than enough to make them happy to stay at home. Does this little amount keep uh, the pressure on a growing inflation? It, oh, it causes the inflation. It causes the inflation because if people have more money to buy and stuff not produced, see, see, here, see the cycle, Tony. If people aren't out working producing stuff, we don't have enough stuff. But the government's giving them lots of cash. So we have all this cash that's getting more and more in their pockets, yet we're not making stuff. Tony, it's, this drives me nuts. The government tries to fix the economy. The best way to fix the economy is to leave it alone. Every time they try to make a, fix a problem, they cause another problem. This is the problem with socialism. Capitalism, you leave it alone, the magic hand of the economy will work. The government gets in and tries to fix stuff, and all they do is break it. I think he just threw a little Adam Smith at us, people. That's what I think just happened. I, I, I may or may not have an expertise on it. I, I don't know. Now, I appreciate Dr. Matt Will being with us from the University of Indianapolis, mattwill.com. Uh, did a little looking. People sent things uh, to me from this conversation I had earlier with uh, the economist, Dr. Matt Will. And the payments are indeed sent. People will get a check in the mail per kid, based on age of kid, depending on income of the household. So when I, I shared that with him and said, uh, people are going to be getting a check, he's like, well, that makes it worse. His exact statement is, that makes it a type of welfare, not a tax credit. From the Clinton playbook, call spending an investment, call welfare tax credit. It's all political spin and not the truth. Either way, we're playing into this inflation world. And yes, indeed, it's a disincentive to work. It's a disincentive. There's... A, even when we looked at it, as I said, right, we looked at the, what, what they did with the extended unemployment benefits. And when they took them away in many of these states, it, it changed things by about 5% in terms of people looking for jobs. I thought it would be much stronger. It doesn't change the fact that paying people extra dollars is a disincentive to work. By definition, it is. And the dollars come from the people who are working, and there's now less work or less that can be created because less people are working. So those businesses now may have a slowdown, especially with inflation, yet they're still paying for the people who aren't working. It's, man, I hate it when people don't understand economics. I really and truly do. They don't understand how it all plays together and rolls together and does get, drives me nuts. How could you not understand? I mean, it brings up Adam Smith, right? The invisible hand. I'm a believer in markets and markets solve problems. And the manipulation of markets is what leads to total disaster. Remember, I'm not a fan of the Fed. The Fed is a disaster. This is, goes back to 1913. 
right? The tilt of America, as I refer to it. You have the direct election of senators, you have the creation of the income tax, and the creation of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve ostensibly was created to stop the swings, the wild gesticulations of the market. Tell me how that's worked out. Tell me how the Fed has done in handling wild movements in the markets and keeping things on the straight and narrow. And the answer is it hasn't. It has been a giant pain in the butt, a serious level of control in an area that the market should control. And other people have been able to truly enrich themselves, but we're not better off. Cash for clunkers under President Obama ripped apart the used car industry and didn't have its intended effect. Remember, we go back to the Depression. If we had left well enough alone, we would have gotten back faster. We would have, wait for it, built back better. But we kept playing around. We kept messing around. The Fed thought it could solve problems. Government thought it could solve problems. It can't. Only the market can make this play. But these inflation issues, these inflation woes, we, I would rather it didn't happen, right? So I think some people want these things. See, see what Biden did? I, I, don't, I don't need that, right? I don't need to get shot to know the bullet hurts. I don't want this for America. But clearly, it's on its way. And the Fed teasing this out as, as a hopes of, hey, we're, we're paying attention to try and calm the markets. I don't know. You know, the funniest thing is, is that the markets, uh, they, uh, I, I often refer to the fact that there was a drone bombing of an oil field in Saudi Arabia during uh, President Trump's term, right? They bombed an oil field, did, did Iran. I think, yeah, I think it was Iran. You know what the markets did? They went, huh, look at that. And they kept going up. It, was an oil, it, it shut down half of the largest oil fields in Saudi Arabia. And nothing changed. Is this market just bulletproof? Well, it might be bulletproof if it doesn't pay attention to things. But if the cost of money goes up, I don't think it has any choice but to pay attention. We'll keep our eyes on it. I've got a lot to get to. That Supreme Court decision as well on Obamacare. It ain't what you think. It still drives me nuts. I'm Tony Katz. This legal fight between the Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, and Governor Eric Holcomb, this this is great. I got to admit, this is one of the weird, fun ones, right? You have the governor's office suing the legislature. That's how this starts. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. So the governor's office sues the state legislature. Because the legislature said they can call themselves into session. And the governor said, no, you can't. It's not in the Constitution. You can't just call yourselves into session. This has to do with emergency powers and whether or not the legislature can call themselves into session to say, hey, Governor Holcomb or any governor, you keep with these mass mandates, keep with these shutdowns. No, 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 no. We have to make that decision. It isn't just yours unilaterally over this length of time. We have a say in this. 
And so they said, well, we can call ourselves into session because there was no mechanism for, for doing so. The governor is saying, no, 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 no. The Constitution does not give you that power. It only gives the governor the sole authority to call a special legislative session. Boom! He vetoes the legislation. General Assembly overrides it. So the governor is saying, no, you, no, no, you don't have this authority. We'll take it to the courts. All right. Take it to the courts. You're following the system. This is totally fine. By the way, taking it to the courts is exactly why, uh, on the federal level, Congress said that Donald Trump was obstructing Congress. Because instead of just handing over paperwork, he wanted the, 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 the courts to answer the question of whether or not he had to. That's obstruction of Congress. It was never obstruction of Congress. It was a garbage claim from garbage people. So, okay, Holcomb goes suing. He hires a legal team. Enter the Attorney General Todd Rokita. He says, oh, whoa, 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 you, you can't hire your own legal team. And, uh, and Governor Holcomb's like, uh, say what? And Rokita's like, I'm your attorney. I'm the only person, my office are the only people who can represent the state in court. And that's what's happening. We're representing a state interest here. You're discussing a state interest here in what the General Assembly has done. And Holcomb's like, yeah, I ain't worried about that. I'm going to hire my guys. And he happens to hire some guys who are like like one of the guys, specifically, seriously anti-Trump. That's neither here nor there. So Rokita is now engaged in a battle with the governor. The Attorney General of Indiana engaged in a battle with the governor of Indiana to see who the representation is in taking on the General Assembly of Indiana. That's unreal. Amazing. You got you got to admit. You got to admit that is something special. That you can see that come uh come into play. That you can see this level of battle cuz this doesn't happen. This do- when does this happen? Where does this happen? How does this happen? It's a cra- now here's what I think is going to happen. I think the governor is actually right. He is in, in 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 his conversation that you can't simply decide something that is already expressed in the constitution. You can't just make that call. I want a constitutional amendment that describes how indeed the General Assembly can call itself back into session. I think there needs to be a a, a, a standard, a, a setup, right? A plan. But they have to be able to. So that I think the governor writes against the General Assembly doesn't mean the General Assembly shouldn't continue to work. Now, if the government, if the governor is then opposed to the General Assembly doing this as a constitutional amendment, well, then fight him tooth and nail. As for Rokita's position, huh, I think he has half a case. We'll find out. I'm Tony Katz. Did you know there was a web outage yesterday? 
I did not know there was a web outage yesterday that hit airlines and banks. Why is this really the first uh, um, um, hearing of it? And this comes after the the summit with Putin and Biden. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, and I love, love how they describe it, the historic summit. Historic? Historic? World leaders meet all the time. Stop it. Don't be silly. Now, remember, Southwest has been having massive problems. And that problem was with their uh, their their weather system, right? So so pilots they they need the weather. They need to know what, what's going on. And there's some crazy weather working its way up the East Coast. In in Indiana, there's the the possibility of tornadoes tomorrow. They've been talking about. I mean, that could all change by the time tomorrow gets here. But the 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 story is that the they weren't able to get the 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 weather and therefore they weren't able to fly and there was like two and a half days two and a half days where they they couldn't really fly i mean that's just a a a massive problem they're finally i think back to it but now the websites of american southwest united and delta and a bunch of financial institutions went down. And one people are wondering whether this is, again, a, a cyber attack. A thousand users reported in, uh, problems at Southwest. 400 came in for Delta. 300 for the other two carriers. And then uh, the, this website Down Detector reported that websites for E-Trade, ADP, Navy Federal Credit Union, Discover and Vanguard also experienced problems and the Hong Kong exchange and Australia central bank also went down briefly. By the way, Australia, I shared this. Did you ever hear, uh, the, the Australians making fun of the U S coverage of Joe Biden? (gasps) It's so good. Hold on. I don't mean the segue here, but you got to hear it for yourself. This is, this is an Australian newscast, and they've got like people there on a panel. Oh, it's amazing. I want to go to the U.S. now because the media has been gushing as their beloved Joe Biden prepares for his trip to the United Kingdom to attend the G7 summit. Listen to how CNN is reporting this momentous event. Joe Biden is stepping onto the world stage for the first time as president and equal to foreign leaders. Now, let's go back in time to 2018 and see if those same newsrooms offer the presidency of Donald Trump such light and positive coverage. Attic and deepening G7 divide, better put perhaps as G6 versus one. <laughs> Sophie, uh, they're essentially, they're, they're calling it the G6 when Trump's there, but Joe Biden's there and it's, and it's momentous and it's positive and it's glowing. And, and it's, it, they're trying to give the illusion that he doesn't have any disputes with any of these international uh, leaders. <laughs> what do you think of that? Now, you will often hear me say, if, if a world leader, you know, uh, other countries finally respect America again, what do I care? What does that matter to me? It means nothing to me. It means nothing to me and really nothing to you if the people of Australia think Donald Trump is a joke or think Joe Biden is a joke. It doesn't matter. 
the argument that this provides is they are openly bashing the U.S. press as simply indecent. They see you just like we see the American press. And yet the Brian Stelters, the Chris Cuomo's, the Don Lemons, the Rachel Maddow's, the Chris Hayes's of the world, the Stephanopoulos's, they don't see it. They keep going down this road that somehow they are, you know, uh, uh, touched by God to provide us these valuable services. Is that or is that not exactly the way? Jim Acosta thinks. And they didn't end there. I just think Joe Biden is a lucky person. He has got <laughs> all the media on his side, or most of the media on his side, particularly CNN, uh, completely at odds with what they did to Trump. So, uh, you know, his popularity surely can only win from this because he's getting so much positive PR through the journalists who are massive fans of him. It's really quite appalling to watch. And what happened to straight news reporting, which doesn't seem to be existent there? You've had that conversation. You've said those exact words. Exact words. Holy cow. And they're still not done. Nick, it's not really journalism, is it? It's, it's, it's the stenographers in a way, aren't yeah. they? They're, they're yeah. documenting history, but they're not being critical. But mm. with Trump, ultra critical, inflammatory in some, in some Always. ways. Always. Trump could do no right. I mean, give Biden, <laughs> give Biden his due. He did get to the top of the Air Force One steps without tripping over his shoelace. Good on him. But Shocked look, I mean, me the, the reality is, you know, and if you talk to Greg Sheridan on The Australian or anybody who knows about foreign affairs, there are considerable question marks over Biden foreign affairs policy. It's not proven yet. Uh, whereas it was the one area, in, in fact, in which Donald Trump did very well, pivoting on China, uh, bringing about the Abraham Accords, which, which is a big step towards peace in the Middle East. The, the worry about Biden is whether he really does have control uh, or, or really the, the nerve or, or, or the confidence to impose American power in the way that Trump did. So, you know, I'm much, I would be much happier to see Donald Trump at the G7, I think. Holy cow. I'm sorry. That's just amazing. I know people were talking about it. I don't know if you ever got a chance uh, to hear it. I thought it was was a must-listen kind of thing. But let's go back to these airlines. This, you know, one of the things they talked about. They were going to work on uh, cyber. They were going to ensure... At least they were going to talk about the fact that, you know, we can't have these cyber attacks. That is different than Joe Biden doing something about the cyber attacks. We should be uh, clear about that. Because Joe Biden isn't doing anything about the cyber attacks. He's not. He's not doing anything about the cyber attacks. That's, that's, That's obvious. He does. I don't even think he knows how to do something against about the cyber attacks. They attack the oil pipeline, they attack uh, the food supply, and nothing's going to happen to them. Rather, we hear people talking about, oh, Joe Biden said he, 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 he trusts uh, Vladimir Putin when just a couple months ago he was calling him a killer. Well, of course he's going to say that. That's not, that's not news. Donald Trump being lovey-dovey about Putin is not news. It's just his style. What matters is what he does. And this is what you take from the press conference. This is what you take from the statement 
doesn't matter that Joe Biden did all the hits when he was reading off the teleprompter, which I, I didn't know. Yesterday, as we were discussing it, he was reading off a teleprompter. Yeah, did you hear him? I did. I was impressed. I didn't know he was reading off the teleprompter because I wasn't seeing it. Why did you think he sounded it. so good? But that's just it. He, I mean, he, he read uh, the statement. And he hit all the spots, but he didn't say it from so much the heart, if you will. This is what he planned out. But what are we supposed to know about what he said? Oh, we talked about this, and he understands, understands in America that. And, the, and what he does. Deeds versus words. I've been writing about this, talking about this since 2016, since Donald Trump got elected. Why Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton? Deeds versus words. It's about the actions. And no one believes Joe Biden is going to have the actions. And less than 12 hours later, you've got these issues with these airlines and these banks. That's that's a problem. Meanwhile, the big story of the day is that the Supreme Court has rejected the challenge to Obamacare. This is a 7-2 decision, but in no way discusses Obamacare. So follow me here. You had a series of states, Republican states, Republican attorneys general, saying that the Affordable Care Act should be struck down because it's unconstitutional. The argument made by the court on a 7-2 decision is that you do not have, wait for it, you're going to hate this, you don't have standing. You don't have standing. The argument being made is that the challenge that you are bringing can't actually be brought. You cannot argue its constitutionality. The state's argument was that the law's individual mandate was unconstitutional. And since there is no more uh, uh, penalty for an individual mandate, what is it that you're actually bringing before us? I think that's where it comes down to. What's interesting is that Justice Breyer wrote the the majority opinion. Who were the two people who dissented? Alito and Gorsuch. Which means that Amy Coney Barrett and, and, and Clarence Thomas, along with Kavanaugh and Roberts, they went with the majority. Now, I ask you, if Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett are voting with the majority, and you say to me, oh, they sold out, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just have to sit and smile and, and, and sip my tea like nothing happened. I'm just going to have to pretend you didn't say it. These kinds of things drive me crazy. They drive me crazy. But this is purely, as I see it, even if if state attorneys general, uh, like the Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita and others, want to say this is wrong and this is a mistake, this is purely procedural. And on that, I will go with Thomas and, and, and Amy Coney Barrett. I will. I would be curious to hear, I have not read it yet, what the dissent is from Alito and Gorsuch.
Now, if you say to me, well, the dissent could very well be that it's the job of the Supreme Court to hear these cases, that's what I said about the Texas lawsuit regarding the election. I believe that the Supreme Court should have heard the case, stating that Pennsylvania disenfranchised the voters of Texas, because I believe that to be true. I think that case has merit. And the point that Alito and and Thomas were making in, in their dissent was, this is our job, people, right? I'm, I'm quoting uh, Donald Sutherland in Animal House. We're supposed to hear these cases. And I believe a lot of this nonsense could have been put to rest if the Supreme Court had heard the case. So I think it's so interesting that Alito is in the same place. I wonder if it's for the same reason. Gorsuch, I, I don't know. I, I want to hear. But this to me is very is simply, I think I would think to, to, to any rational mind taking a look at it who isn't an expert on SCOTUS. This is a procedural conversation and not having anything to do with whether or not there's a validity to Obamacare on any level with or without an individual mandate. This is going to get talked about and people are going to play it wrong. Listen for how they play it politically and then you'll realize where they're lying. I'm Tony Katz. So someone did some testing on kids' masks, and what they came back with is just frightening in terms of all the problems, all the issues, all of the nastiness that exists on a mask. So the story is from townhall.com. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure, guys. So they put out a press release that this group of parents out in Gainesville, Florida, concerned about the harms from masks, submitted six face masks to a lab. And what they found? Uh, Borley Bergdorferi. Do you know what that is, Producer Ari? Uh, yeah, that's when you rub a genie's lamp, but the genie doesn't come out. Right, right. It causes Lyme disease. Um, Legionella pneumophilia, pneumophila, which is Legionnaire's disease. Staphylococcus uh, pyogenes uh, serotype M3. And Staphylococcus uh, aureus, uh, which can bring about meningitis and sepsis. You know, just some stuff. Meanwhile, the Indiana State Department of Health is advising school districts that vaccinated students can come back next year and not wear a mask. So unvaccinated students have to wear a mask? No, 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 no. And how can you even ask? Are teachers going to ask students if they're vaccinated? We don't think that's a violation of privacy. We don't think that's uh, abusive as the day is long. I'm pretty sure it's abusive. I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But they're kids. Parents are wary of, of vaccines for their kids in many, many cases. The, the, the virus is least lethal for kids. They have to wear masks, including, as the reporting goes... 
12 and under and there is no vaccine for kids 12 and under, they would have to wear a mask. How much do we hate our kids? This is nuts. And some of the school districts are like, look, this, this, this may change again before the summer vacation is over. Yeah, I would assume so. Not sending my kid back to school with a mask? No. No. We have science on our side. Data on our side. Masks don't work. They're not effective. At least on, on, on SARS-CoV-2, on, on coronavirus. They're effective maybe towards other things. Well, of course, a mask stops something. It does not stop COVID. It doesn't do it. We've got the emails from Dr. Fauci. We have got the data. And the State Department of Health has nothing. Zero. Anybody who still says wearing a mask is necessary regarding COVID is wrong. Now, that's different than whether or not they're allowed to wear a mask. Uh, go go on with your bad self. Wear a mask. Live your life. You, you be you. You be you. I, I don't even need to know. I don't need to know what, what, your, uh, what your fetish is. You know, tell my kid they have to wear a mask? Nah. You're going to tell 12-year-olds and under, sorry, no vaccine for you, and you have to wear a mask. No. You're going to ask my kids if they've been vaccinated? We're going to have a fight. A large fight. Hope school districts are ready for this. Parents aren't putting up with this. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Go to TonyKatz.com and support the show. Tomorrow, everyone.